Leading Safely podcast. Today I have a really cool chat for you with a special guest who joins me all the way from the States, which is where I will be presenting next week at the annual Community of Human and Organisational Learning Conference in Portsmouth, Virginia, USA. I am super excited. My special guest is also a presenter at the conference. Now, I'm going to do things a little bit different in this intro today because I would like to tell you about where my special guest works before I tell you what he does for this employer. It will make sense once I say where he works, what accolades they've won, and then what his role actually is. So, my special guest works for Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, also known as the Berkeley Lab. Berkeley Lab is a member of the National Laboratory System supported by the US Department of Energy through its Office of Science. It's managed by the University of California, or UC, and is charged with conducting unclassified research across a wide range of scientific disciplines. It's actually located on a 200-acre site in the hills above the University Berkeley campus that offers spectacular views of the San Francisco Bay. The Berkeley Lab employs approximately 4,200 scientists, engineers, support staff and students. 13 scientists associated with the Berkeley Lab have actually won the Nobel Prize. 57 lab scientists are members of the National Academy of Science, one of the highest honours for a scientist in the US. 13 of the scientists have won the National Medal of Science, the nation's highest award for lifetime achievement in fields of scientific research. 18 of the lab's engineers have been elected to the National Academy of Engineering and three of their scientists have been elected into the Institute of Medicine. In addition, Berkeley Lab has trained thousands of university science and engineering students who are advancing technological innovations across the US and around the world. So who is our special guest then? Well, it is none other than the lab's Human Performance Improvement Manager. A massive job, but it is my new friend, James Newman. So here is my chat with James. Hi, James. Uh, welcome to the Leading Safely podcast. And thanks for taking time out of your busy morning slash afternoon, whatever it is over there in the States uh, to join me. I uh, hope you've had a, a good start to your day. So far, so good. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, so as you know, I like to ask um, all of my, my special guests uh, four. There is now a fourth question um, in regards to health and safety. And the first question is, what do you think makes an effective health and safety leader? All right. So I, I think the, uh, I want to break it into half and I want us to talk about what makes an effective leader first and then okay, we'll get sure. the, the, the safety part. Um, so I have just one simple answer for that, and that is somebody who creates and fosters a psychologically safe work environment. That That is a. Uh, uh, there's a lot that goes into it. Obviously, there's traits like courage and integrity and humility and all that stuff. But I think somebody who creates that kind of environment has all that stuff. So that, that that's the output I'm looking for, for uh, uh, somebody who's going to be successful doing that. Um, now I want to get into the safety side of that. So now we're not just being a leader, we're being a leader in, in, in safety. And uh, for that, I want to go back to college for a minute. And uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I I went to college when I, when I went back to college, I went for workforce education development. And one of the things we learn about is how people learn. And we learn our, you know, through our, our hands, our head, and our heart, right? Um, and each of these have different, we call them taxonomy, taxonomies or, or realms of learning. And 
this uh, realm of the heart. I want to really talk about that. Um, what the taxonomy looks like, and if you want to look it up, it's Crotwell's taxonomy. And um, it's five levels, and it starts with receiving, goes to responding, valuing, organizing, and characterizing. And in that order, and receiving, think of an expectation like, I want you to wear a seatbelt, right? So if I never know that you want me to wear a seatbelt, I can't even start the scale, right? Uh, so the okay. first step is I, I learn something. Okay, um, I'm, uh, somebody wants me to wear a seatbelt, right? Um, now I can. I have this choice now in this responding, how I'm going to respond to that. Am I going to uh, say, oh, all right, if you say so, I'll do it. Or if you're gonna pay me to do that, I'll do that. Or if I'm gonna get in trouble with the law, I'll do that. So I'm gonna have motivations for how I respond to it, whether I'm gonna wear a seatbelt or not. So that's responding. And then valuing, next level up is, I see the value in wearing a seatbelt because I've seen studies and I, and I know all this uh, uh, extra information. I've seen things with my own eyes that say wearing a seatbelt is much better. So I, I'm, I'm moving from responding to this, to this is something I actually value. Well, organizing and characterizing, those are very, very rough terms to uh, really understand. So I call them advocating and being fanatical about something. So advocating is not only do I think I should wear the seatbelt, but I think other people should wear seatbelts too. So when you get in my car and you're not putting their seatbelt on, I might coach you because mm -hmm. I'm an advocate. Like this is more than valuing. Like, um, so I'm going to ask you to do something that you might not be comfortable with, but that makes me feel better because I'm advocating now for something that uh, yeah. I feel like you should be doing. And then being fanatical, you know, I'm not going to start this car or I'm not going to get it in your car unless you're wearing a seatbelt, right? Like some people are fanatical about things and, um, and, and they uber value something like, like way overvalue it. So, and if, and if you have loved ones with pet peeves, it's probably right in that line, you know, they're fanatical <laughs> about things and, and that's how, you know, you can get on their nerves because you know, those things about them yeah. that they're fanatical about. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, what I look for in a safety leader is somebody who's at that advocate level already. Like, I don't want to train them. I want them to already be at that advocate level. So if they see something, they will say something. It's already in their personality. They are ready to do that. So um, that's that's how I'd approach uh, uh, answering questions. That's great. And that, that kind of does tie in nicely with the second question is, I guess, how would you deal with someone who, you know, may not necessarily want to change and make those, those positive, you know, move along the journey towards positive health and safety change? Sure. We, um, the first class I ever taught in my entire life uh, professionally was uh, about change, you know, uh, and, the, and the only lesson in it, I remember this, was that you can't control the change, but you can control how you respond to the change. Right. And that, that's how you as a stakeholder mm -hmm. can handle things. And all right, it's a lot of placating, but sure. And but one thing I remember is this, the only person that likes change is a wet baby. <laughs> I never forgot that. <laughs> it's kind of uh, uh, stuck with me. So. And most people aren't that way. So, you know, um, um, one of the things that that I've learned along, along the way is the most important thing to do is to talk to people and mm -hmm. actually have these conversations. So when there's somebody who's resistant to something um, and I, I have them in my organization right now, what I tell other people about those people, because behind closed doors mm -hmm. or in other Zoom meetings, they're like, these are problem people. I say, no, 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 these people care about stuff more yep. than other people because they're so resistant to it. It's like, why are they digging in? So there's something there. Um, what kicked up their level of care on this? And sometimes it's a historical uh, story that, that drove them to this belief or whatever it is. But 
I, I try mm -hmm. to look at these people as being a little bit more passionate than your every uh, everyday average person. So um, when um, we had this problem, um, one of the companies I work for, they said, look, um, not only do we want you to create human performance program here, can you help us fix the trust between the workers and the supervision? And uh, there were a lot of people that are digging in and, and really resistant to doing anything new. and. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, I'll just go out and start talking to people. So that's what I did. I interviewed every single person in the, uh, in the whole company in, in that group. And wow. what I learned was like three years before, uh, management had said, hey, can you um, put together a list of things that you want us to work on for you? And they had meetings, mm -hmm. did all this. They created this document and they're all proud of it. And management did nothing with it. Uh, okay. This, created this uh this distrust and this yeah. was the point so we pulled that document back out and we started making edits to it these are the things that are current now and then the director said to the leadership team these are the things we're focusing on and i just love how that all played out we wouldn't have yeah. known that um unless we started talking to people and, and learn that so obviously um it, it's not a one size fits all solution kind of thing but you will find those different uh um, artifacts in the organization as to why it is the way it is if you start talking to people so mm -hmm. uh, finding out you know why are they stuck why are they digging in all that stuff yeah no i like that idea talking to people and understanding the reasoning behind things you know can yeah. help move them along or potentially understand why they don't want to and what you know a barrier for them at that precise moment in time that's yeah. great and the next question is a bit of a, an interesting one. So if you had all the money and all the resources and, you know, opinions didn't matter and you had the ability to create something that would solve a workplace issue, uh, a nice little invention that you could tag with your name, what would you invent and why? All right. So I got uh, three things. <laughs> okay, three like, things. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I, I try to be an idea person uh, uh, and... So the first thing, um, and we were talking about it uh, before, uh, the number one problem, it seems, uh, in a lot of places you go, no matter how industrial or not it is, is slip, trips, and falls. So um, uh, I, will, I will tell you, I don't know what the invention would be, <laughs> but that's oh. what it would address. <laughs> so I, I'll just say that that's okay. what it would address. It would be something. Right. In, 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 in all reality, I've seen companies that do this and it costs a lot of money, but they come and they do an assessment and they look for mismatched surfaces. They look for things mm -hmm. that say, hey, that step is is a is the same color as the uh, the pavement below. Let's put a you know yellow curb uh, uh, painting on there or something like that. Uh, and mm -hmm. they can totally change the environment with these little um, uh, indicators. And uh, um, it's very expensive. But if I didn't have to worry about money, that's something I would do everywhere. By the way, not just you know at one okay. facility or whatever. That that would uh, uh, kind of change things. Uh, I think. Okay. All right. Yeah. So. Um, uh, one of the biggest, mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you've ever heard of ISM, the um, uh, Integrated Safety Management, um, and this is how uh, the governmental uh, facilities um, look at safety quite a lot anyway throughout the labs in, in the United States. And um, there's a process, it's a five-step process, and it's uh, define the scope, um, analyze your hazards, um, you're going to implement tailored controls for those hazards, perform the work that you're going to do, and then feedback to the system so it gets better next time. 
that's the uh, that's the ISM process, and a lot of places have adapted that, and I love it. I really do. But where it is weak, uh, and it's weak everywhere, is this feedback, this part five. Like, how can we learn? How can we get better? So um, applying a, a knowledge management system that actually works. Um, I've seen something work before in the past, and, and it's so simple to do, but so few people do it. But if I was in charge, I would have everybody do it. And what it is, <laughs> is at the end of your job, at the end of the work that you're doing of the task, you're going to... Mm -hmm. uh, fill out a form could be a word document could be anything it doesn't have to be a particular system or anything you pay for mm -hmm. it can be something you already have and in that document you're going to set up the next person who's going to do that job for success these are the tools this is where i found this this is where i found that this is the, the you know the, the the special equipment i needed for this this is where we store it or this is where it's stored today because it might change mm -hmm. you know in the, in the future so um and then that becomes your pre-job briefing form that goes along with the, your formality stuff, all the institutionalized things. This is just um, notes from the last person to do the job, you know, um, and whether okay. it's going to be notes for you or notes for somebody else, um, I really think that that's beneficial. Now, I'm not saying we should bypass a procedure process. If there's a procedure for something and it needs some updates, okay. obviously you want to do that. This is uh, um, on top of that. So, um, okay. so a knowledge management system that gets that stuff right in front of people, I think that would really, really help. And then finally, and this is um, um, going to lead to something that my heart is near and dear to, and that's psychological safety, and that's making things as easy as possible to report. So a reporting hotline at every facility, um, you know, uh, not like a 911 thing, but for anything, there's a leak on a fitting over there or, oh my gosh, yeah. uh, you know, I was going down the ladder and I slipped and, and I noticed there's coatings on these ladders and they're all a little slippery. Perhaps we should remove the, I don't know, whatever it is, yeah. have a reporting hotline that's simple, 24-7 man by, by somebody who, um, who collects your photos, videos, whatever you want to do, your story, and this is the issue, and then they can help disposition it to where it needs to go. Um, keeping reporting as simple as possible for those involved. That, that I think will really help. They're actually not too far-fetched for, I guess, inventions. You know, like that's not really that hard to implement. It's not, but, and that's, isn't that, yeah, I hope that doesn't blow any minds. I will tell you, it is <laughs> simple to do, but yet we don't have the resources, it seems, to yeah. do it. Um, yeah. Um, and, and not every organization uh, that needs it does it. Some organizations. Oh, that's true. You know, like if you have an yeah. operations group that's there 24-7, you tend to yeah. have your stuff go through operations because they're there all the time. But if you don't have that, now what do you do? So Yeah. And I mean, there are things like whistleblower hotlines, you know, like if it's something to do with ethics or bullying and harassment, there's those kinds of lines. Sure. I mean, we have those in Australia, but not so much for an incident or a near miss or an event that, you know, may have occurred or something you've seen that you think you need to call through. And, you know, it speaks right to your point of psychological safety and you know, creating an environment where you're not going to be judged. You're not going to be reprimanded. Your job's not on the line if you call something in. Right. Be right. A, a uh, nice environment. I, um, it really, um, when I would go to an organization and do a human performance assessment, one of the things I look for on day one is your near misses. Show me your near misses. And, and that tells me a big story because if they, if they say, I don't have any near misses to show you, <laughs> that tells me something. Yeah. If they have yeah. a list of like four in the past five years, that tells me something, you know, everything about that question, the answer is going to tell you something about, um, what they think about near misses and reporting and all that stuff. So if they yeah, give me definitely. a list of 
20 near misses in the last year, I would be like, all right, now we're talking, you know? Uh, yeah. Less to do here than I thought, you know? Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah. No, fair enough. And the last question, which is a new question I've added in the last kind of few weeks is around, you know, if you could give your younger self some advice on, you know, surviving and thriving in your career, and obviously you've had a great one to date, what what kind of words of wisdom and advice would you give yourself to, to help you survive and get through it? One of the things that um, uh, would have been nice to know in the past is that this was still going to be a career option today. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember having a conversation with my father back in the uh, um, late 90s. He, he was shaking his head. He's like, I don't know why you don't want to be an instrument control specialist anymore. You want to be a human performance person. He says, I don't think there's any money in that. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's still where, uh, 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 where my heart was. I finally got in in 2007 and I haven't uh, looked back since. Uh, but yeah. So just knowing that this was going to be a growing field um, would have been really great uh, to know. That that might not be so much advice like, you know, hey, invest in Google or something like that. Uh, but I would say one of the things that um, um, I've seen people do uh, wrong, and I've probably done it wrong as I was coming up, is that um, I would train workers with the same material I would learn human performance about. Like, in other words, I'm training them to do my job instead of training them on how to use this stuff in their job. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was definitely uh, a mistake newbies make, I think, is they just think that, well, let's talk about performance modes. You really think workers want to address performance modes in the same way? And maybe they do. But it depends on the worker and it depends on how you're introducing it to them. I'll tell you, performance modes, I went to an eight-hour training on performance modes and I teach it in 15 minutes. And I, I'm pretty sure uh, workers would appreciate the short, short, short version um, as long as they know. And this is, by the way, why I talk about it with workers. I don't want anybody leaving a pre-job brief in knowledge-based mode. So that's that's you know uh, yeah. at the end of yep. when we're talking about human performance tools at the end of talking about performance modes and stuff that that's the reason that you know it's yep. like why do I need to know what performance modes are well um, well because if you're in knowledge base and you recognize it you probably need you to you gotta stop. make the most amount of errors and you need yeah. you need to know that yep. that's right so um, I had a couple of other ones um, we actually just talked about it. target the leadership team don't target the yep. the the work uh, worker level until you've got the leadership team um, uh, on board. And also, this is another mm -hmm. one. Um, a lot of people think, you know, well, it's a uh, safety is for everybody. So let's talk about, well, what's the difference between safety and human performance in that case? Is human performance for your cafeteria workers? You know, is it for people who don't touch the system? Right. So um, first we define the system in a power plant. It's easy, right? It's anything that that supports the, the power plant running. So in a power plant, if you don't support the plant running, you probably don't need to come to the training. You probably don't need to be part of how this yeah. effort is going to move forward. And we used to call that power block. You know, anybody who's touching the power block, that's our audience mm -hmm. because they have the yeah. chance of ripping the plant offline. Or if you're in a data center, yeah. you know, uh, um, um, knocking uh, the data center offline and, uh, you know, uh, getting downtime. And obviously that that's not good. But the idea is you target groups that have these touch points. 
Um, and that's really helpful because what it does is it reduces some of the population of the people that you need to worry True. about. <laughs> True. And the work for yourself, I guess. If you're trying to change the world, it's a little bit harder if you have a gazillion people to influence than, you know, a key, you know, key users or key stakeholders that you've identified and can really hone in the information and make it tailored to them. That is right. So that's, uh, uh, that's advice I would give that's- myself. That's yeah. fantastic. Alrighty, and now I understand, obviously, you're an expert in human and organizational performance and specifically human performance, um, and you have some really key kind of insights around the future of that space to share with my <laughs> listeners. Okay. This is what my expectation, it will be uh, the future of human and organizational performance. Uh, okay. I really think we're going to launch further into psychological safety. Um, I, mm-hmm. I, I see us, um, obviously, you know, with uh, uh, Tim Clark's four stages of psychological safety, we have all of this stuff from Amy Edmondson. I just think a lot more people are going to start coming around this and forming um, uh, ways of inclusion because what we see is benefits of this. This is how people are going to uh, work with people again. You know, uh, now, do I see uh, artificial intelligence helping out? I absolutely do. Um mm-hmm. But I, I really think that if we get into this space where people feel comfortable um, um, sharing their issues or, uh, or, or or asking what other people might think are the, the dumb question, you know, if, as long as people feel uh, comfortable doing that, um, I really think that, that that's the future. Um, and I wish it was the present. We're getting there. Um, but uh, years ago, um, I had a buddy, um, in nuclear power and and we were talking about this and he says i feel like we're 95 percent of the way there um and i said well in human performance what's going to knock us down you know what's going to get us to 100 percent and he said uh managing defenses i really like that answer but i i I tend to think that that's going to probably do that 97 percent we still have to uh have these uh psychologically safe work environments and in nuclear power they call it safety conscious work environment and they really push that from day one of you getting hired through every day through your trainings it's all part of that and outside of nuclear power obviously that's not a common thing so uh to see the uh the contrast um i've I've been out of uh nuclear power since 2014 and Mm -hmm. um i haven't seen anything like that outside of nuclear power this uh building this safety conscious uh um i'm in a, a, a group where, where I work, it's a safety culture group, which is the closest thing actually I, I've seen to it. And it's um, just a group of uh, uh, like-minded people trying to pay attention to uh, uh, to reporting and things like that. For example, we had somebody uh, stop a job because they thought they had done something and um, it got escalated in all kinds of ways. Uh, and that person ended up getting blamed for doing something. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. we ended up getting the person a spot recognition because they did exactly oh, what wow. we to do. We had some damage control, you know, because yeah. when people don't understand what's going on, assumptions get made and then, uh, you know, blanks get filled and not right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I just really, oh, really wow. think that uh, psychological safety is, um, is the next stage um of uh, uh human organizational performance but we shall see um AI <laughs> is just blowing my mind i'm i'm yeah. soaking up all of it i can um um and uh, learning a lot uh from it um, oh well that's great thanks very much for sharing i guess your view on where you see things going and, and you know like psych safety is definitely a massive you know piece that 
human organisational performance is, you know, currently interlinking with. And, you know, it's it's great to see some of those trailblazers as well, making, you know, collaborating and giving yeah. us some information that is, you know, really operational and, you know, girl, guys and girls on, on the ground can, you know, grab hold of and kind of run with it. Um, you know, sometimes when people, you know, create inventions or theories get put out there or new kind of views on the world, it sometimes hits doesn't hit the mark with the frontline workers. So I think psych safety is something that's perhaps it's reverse engineered because it's really the guys and girls on the ground that are not feeling, you know, that they're they're valued. They're not feeling they can speak up and speak out when things happen. So it's for them. It's a great, you know, little element that it's really for them. And I guess, you know, all levels throughout the organization as well. But and and back to that of, uh, you know, what makes a good leader, right? Creating that environment that Yeah, most that definitely. Happens. Um, I was part of, uh, uh, they call it the, the North American Young Generation in Nuclear Group, a really, really horrible acronym, but um, it was, uh, <laughs> oh, there's a lot of people that belong to it, and uh, actually, hopefully, some of your listeners even belong to uh, NAYGN or the European Young Generation in Nuclear, uh, um, and one of the uh, uh, the meetings that we had, there was about 25 um, people in it and all of them professionals, you know, a lot of them were engineers and stuff. And I asked this question, mm-hmm. uh, I said, how many people in here by show of hands know what a flange is? And five people raised their hand. And wow. so that I'm like, uh, everybody who is who was there had <sighs> been there for years. Oh, I hear you sighing. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. No, I know. <laughs> These are nuclear professionals who didn't know what a flange yeah. was. Because I know they hear it three to four times a day, right? But they yeah. just never wanted to ask because it felt like I should have known this by now. So that little lesson really uh, opened my eyes to, um, I have to make sure as a mentor or as somebody who's been around for a little while, that I make mm-hmm. it safe to ask what they think is a, a silly question or something that they should have known by now. Um, obviously, people weren't making it safe for these people to ask those questions, or just nobody ever challenged them on that before. Um, yeah. I, I, and to be I, honest, I can't think of why I asked them that question other than I had this gut feeling that something was, uh, uh, you know, amiss. I think the other element there as well, James, is is also regardless of what type of professional you are, if you're a safety practitioner or a safety professional, whatever we call ourselves in this space, you should never, and obviously this is my personal opinion, but you should never lose touch with the operational side of the business either. Um, and, you know, it's a really great professor, Nectarios, who, you know, does stuff um, in collaboration with myself at different events. And he talks about you know, physically doing the work. And I'm very much an advocate of regardless what type of professional you are, you should be out there every day with the workers and, you know, like really spending time and understanding the systems and processes and tools and flanges and valves and, you know, things that go up and down. Right. Correct. Not only the terminology, but how it works, like really understand how it works so that when you get that event, when you get that hazard report, when you when you get someone coming to you with an issue, you can actually not only visualize it, but you understand it. And you can almost put yourself in the worker's shoes and really have that empathy and understanding of, okay, I get why in that specific context at that precise moment in time, the worker may have done something different to the norm. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm very much an advocate of 
at least once a week or once a month if you can allow your professionals to do it. Let them actually go out into the field, not with a clipboard, not with a notebook, not with an observational mindset, but with a physically doing the work. Go and lift the rubbish bin like the, the garbos do. Like go and, you know, lift a shovel, do the work if you can and get those calluses on your hands to remind you of what it is that makes your organization great. And it, it's not the books, it's those people doing the work. I love I love the idea. A lot of places won't allow you to pick something up. Though. Of course <laughs> they won't. It. I love the idea. <laughs> and maybe so, not in a nuclear plant. <laughs> right, right, right. But I wanna I wanna uh, uh, close you with this particular uh, piece of advice, and this is uh, uh, probably along the, the advice I wish I knew this a, a long time ago. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I've helped to uh, create or or reimagine uh, a few different observation programs along the way, and. One of the things I've really learned about observations, uh, when we're stuck on just watching people's behaviors uh, and and grading them on the observables of those behaviors and stuff, um, I almost think that that is not as nearly as important as this particular thing. When when leadership gets out into the field to do an observation, I want them looking at one thing, and that is, mm-hmm. did we set these people up for success or not? And yeah. Did we give them the right training? Did they give give them the right tools, the mm-hmm. right the right timing, the right in the schedule? You know, all, all of the things that they need to be successful. Because if they if we didn't, that's on us, the the leaders, to fix that. Yep. they're the ones yep. who are empowered to fix that, and we can listen to the feedback from the workers. And I think, I really do think, I want to say this: I believe that if organizations did that more then um, workers would actually invite leaders into the field and say, oh, hey, I agree with you. come check this out because uh, we were not set up for success and these are all the struggles that we've yeah. had. You know? So, yeah. but th- that's what I want. Um, that's a great question. A really great question. And I think workers, you know, obviously workers would agree with you, but if, yeah, if a, if a leader could ask themselves that question when they're out in the field, before they tick the box that says, oh, yes, Johnny did the unsafe behavior and didn't use X, Y, Z instead of, you know, ABC. Sure. I think we're looking at a change, you know, a transformational change with yeah, everything, well, really. Think of how, um, how beneficial those little tick marks have been over the course of time. I'm going to say yeah. a little beneficial. A little. You know, yeah. the, the major benefit is that the leader was out there. That's yeah, the correct. best, you know, uh, and having those conversations <laughs> in the people's better than nothing. Seat. Right, right. So that's yeah. the major benefit. The 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 documentation, small benefit. Um, but if we reimagine it and say, hey, are these people set up for success or not for this particular task? Um, I think we get a lot more organizational learning and fixing of things, uh, yep. and identified resources that uh, perhaps we we might need. So yeah, no, that's perfect, and such a lovely little close, I guess, to the episode. So I appreciate your your time and your insights and the learnings that you've provided us with in this short amount of time. Um, and and thanks again for taking time out of your day to share your knowledge and and those insights. Oh, it's great. I really appreciate you, Georgina. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Well, there you go. That was my chat with the awesome James Newman, who has been great with helping me get prepared for this trip to the States, which is now just a matter of days away. 
I still have to pack my bags and print my tickets and organize travel insurance and add final touches to my presentation. Plus I'm dealing with full-time work stuff like client meetings, debriefs. Um, I finished my last assignment for uni for this semester and I've been prepping my three-year-old son so that he knows I'm heading to work and will be away for a little while but that I'm coming back so I don't have a whole day of tantrums like I had when I went away a few weeks ago for five days and was in tears by the end of the first day back. So fingers crossed for me if you're listening to this that uh, it's not going to happen again. Uh, I land in Norfolk on Saturday. So if you're listening to this and will be anywhere nearby uh, in Norfolk, Virginia, Portsmouth, not sure if I've even said that in the right order, um, please feel free to reach out. I would love to catch up with you. I look forward to meeting some of you at the conference for those of you that are attending or perhaps listening in virtually. So until next time, stay safe.